are continuing in parables of Jesus this morning. And I, I don't know about you, but I think um, these, uh, these weeks have been, have been really interesting. I, I love looking at the parables, uh, hearing Steve and, and, and doing research into them myself. So um, I think it's, it's been a, an exciting series. I'm, I'm encouraged as we continue to look at these. Jesus teaches important things. He teaches important theology. He teaches about the kingdom of God. He teaches about sin and salvation and God's mercy and God's love and all of these things through parables so that we would see them, so they would be vivid to us, so that they would be memorable to us, so that we would remember and, and, uh, and learn as, uh, from, his, from his parables. Our parable today is more straightforward perhaps than last week's, uh, but it's challenging nonetheless. So uh, we're looking at the parable this morning of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Uh, it's on page 737 if you're using a pew Bible, and we'll read it together starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my, all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, as we come to your word, we do ask that you would be our teacher and our guide and that you would speak words of truth to us. Uh, use me to that end for your purposes, and we pray it uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. I read recently, some people are estimating that by next year, by 2016, the richest 1% of the world's population will own more than 50% of the world's wealth and resources. This is an increase of 48, from 48% this, uh, in 2014, according to the assessment. So if you think about it, that's a, that's a large jump, two percentage points in two years. And so what that means is at some point next year, according to these estimates, there, we'll reach a tipping point in which the 1% will own and control more wealth than the other 99% of people on the globe combined. So there are about, what, 7 billion people on planet Earth right now. So what that means is 70 million people own as more than 6.93 billion people combined. It's something like this. If you just think about the numbers a bit. Uh, the population of California and Texas, and maybe throw in another state or two, against the rest of the world. Think about it that way. All of the people in China, India, all of the rest of the world, compared to 
the number of people who live in California and Texas. That's how, that's the, that's sort of like 1% versus the 99%. Here are a few more statistics. Found all this, it was an interesting article that I read this week. The 80 richest people in the world have a collective wealth of $1.9 trillion. And that is up 50% in the last four years. So the 80 richest people in the world have gained $600 billion in the last four years. Indeed, the very richest are getting very much richer. It's estimated that there are 1,643 billionaires in our world. Um, 30% of those live in the United States. So all of these statistics are interesting, and they're pointing out to us, of course, what's very true, that the world displays a vast number of inequalities. And yet, on some things, people, of course, are very much equal. Those 80 richest, those 1,645 billionaires, those top 1%, they can't cheat death. They can't overcome it. They can't live long enough to spend and enjoy all of their wealth, really, even if they tried. I read something else that surprised me this week. Jesus taught more about money than he did about prayer. More of Jesus' teaching is about stewardship, about the wise use of resources, and about generosity than it is about connecting with our Heavenly Father in prayer. Isn't that interesting? I was, I was kind of stunned by it. And, you know, how imp- we know how important prayer is, and we know how much Jesus taught about prayer, and yet if you really look at the number of verses and how much he taught, he taught more about resources and about wealth and about money. So our parable this morning is one of those. It's an interesting one. Uh, it will challenge our perspective, I hope, as God's word always does. It will, I hope, change us and teach us this morning. We'll start with the context of the parable. It's in Luke 12, and this is what we might call an occasional parable. It's one that's told in a particular occasion because of a particular event of the day. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus has brought a request from this nameless person in the crowd, and this was common practice, that the rabbis of the day would be asked for wisdom, to solve disputes between people. So so there's something of this request that's respectful. Jesus is respectfully being presented with a request for adjudication, for justice, according to this man. But if we look carefully, it's not exactly a request for justice, right? It's a request that Jesus take this man's side in a dispute against his brother. So the man is not coming to Jesus and saying, we have a problem, we need you to be a fair and impartial witness between myself and my brother, right? The man is saying, Jesus, I want you on my side, and you need to tell my brother what he should do, right? Make my brother divide the inheritance with me. I'm going to use you to get what I want from my brother, Rabbi. So what's the root of this request that makes for such a teachable moment for our parable? Often in that culture, when the father died, it was the responsibility for the older son to divide up the property for the siblings, according to the various guidelines that were were part of the Old Testament law, as well as the the laws of the day. There's evidence that sometimes this, this oldest son would wait for a while before a final settlement. 
because, partly because the property was often very, I don't know, unliquid, if we can use that word. It was, it was um, you know, it was land, it was animals, it was houses, it wasn't bank accounts, it wasn't just, just money, so it was hard to divide up. It was hard to know exactly how to make a fair division according to the law. So if we think about that background, perhaps this is the younger son, one of the younger sons. He's pressing Jesus. Make my brother divide up the estate. He's taking too long. And I think it seems likely that the divide here is more than just the estate. The root of such a request is a broken relationship. The younger brother wants to take his stuff and be left alone, perhaps. He wants to end the negotiation and be free to go. Perhaps he wants out of the family. The driving motivation of the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 might have been similar. My older brother is such a jerk. I don't like my father. Let me have my stuff. I'm going to go. Right? The, the request is a demand. Take my side against my brother and make him give me what is my right. The problem with demanding rights, of course, is that we're so confident in asserting our rights from our own perspective in the name of what we call justice that we're not objective about it and we're really just trying to assert control and assert our own selfishness. And so that's why I think we should, we should read that Jesus' response here has an edge to it. It's not, it's not a kind and... Um, you know, it's not just that he won't do what the man says, but I think there's even something of a rebuke in his reply in verse 14. Jesus replied, man, which isn't exactly, you know, a term of endearment, um, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be drawn into this dispute because it's not a call for justice. What it is, is it's a demand for division for the final division of a family, for the relational divide to be set in stone through a material divide. See what's going on there? Some of us know, I think, probably, painfully, that the, the division of an estate can be a very difficult process for siblings. It can create hurts. It can break relationships. It can expose and magnify the brokenness and the rivalries that were already there. And for some families, the material divide finalizes the relational divide. But Jesus asserts that I didn't come to divide. I came to reconcile. And so I'm not going to be an arbiter. I'm not going to take up your side in this dispute against your brother. But I'm going to tell a parable in order to get the heart to the heart of the issue. As we think about parables, as we've done all the way along, we have to consider who the characters are. And in this parable, it's very easy. We only have this one rich man, and we have God. It's interesting for us that God is such an active character in this parable. Usually, God is represented by another character in Jesus' parables. Usually, he's sort of working behind the scenes. But God is very active in this parable. He's, his entrance is, uh, is dramatic, it's forceful. No one speaks for him, he speaks for himself. He thunders, as it were, into the parable at the end, as we'll see. So those are our characters. 
And if we think about the structure of it as well, the parable is sandwiched between two what we might call wisdom sayings. So sort of sayings of general truth that Jesus says as an introduction, that he says as a conclusion, and then the parable is right in the middle. These wisdom sayings are warnings of danger and of judgment. And the first one then we find in verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Seeing the greedy heart of the man making the request, Jesus then turns to address the whole crowd. This poor guy got made into an object lesson. Did you hear this man's request? This man is in serious danger. You also don't fall into the same trap. Watch out. Be on your guard. Beware. It's critical warning, flashing red lights, sirens going off, right? Examine your heart, look out, beware. You will naturally fall into this trap. So examine your heart and be on guard of the same kind of temptation. Which, as we look at the warning here, it has sort of two dimensions in this warning. First, all kinds of greed kind of means all kinds of greedy desires. It's this idea of covetousness. And it's this idea that these desires are insatiable. That these desires can never be fully met or fully fulfilled. There's never enough. We think after we get the next thing that we'll be satisfied, but it doesn't exactly work like that, does it? Does it? Well, maybe the next thing will be the thing that kind of, you know, really satisfies me. Do not covet, of course, is the tenth of the Ten Commandments, the one that indicates a permanent condition of a sinful heart, that it's impossible to satisfy. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, uh, talks about he didn't know what coveting was until the law told him not to covet. And then all kinds of coveting became a temptation to him. His heart wasn't satisfied, and he thought that was just natural, until the law said, no, be satisfied and be content. And he said, wait, I can't. My heart wants more and more. My heart wants more stuff. My heart wants what other people have. Whatever it is. And as those statistics demonstrated at the beginning of the sermon, right, often it seems like wealth leads to more wealth. If you have money, it works for you. And it's hard or near impossible for the heart not to continue to add. The cards are stacked. The deck is stacked so that wealth multiplies. And people have to work hard to give away their abundance. You you think of people like um, Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation, and how they have this army of people who they hire to give away their money. It's really admirable. You think of others, of course. There are counterexamples, but the way the world works is that money multiplies and money adds, and the rich tend, seems like, more and more to get richer. So that's the first kind. The first idea here, the first warning is that there's this this kind of insatiable greed thing that happens in our hearts. The second is alongside this idea that life is not measured by, that life cannot be contained by, that life is not in one's material possessions. The reference here, the, the Greek word is the idea of the quality of life, not just the, there's another word for the sort of biology of life, 
of living things. This is the quality of life. The abundance of life is not gained by the abundance of possessions. So this man's heart is telling him a double lie. You'll be satisfied if you get this inheritance and your life will be better and you'll be and you are incomplete until you get it. This property, this money, whatever it is, the things that will make your life complete and then you'll be satisfied only with it. And this of course is a new lie. We're told it all the time from our society, you're the master of your things. Your things will make you happy. Your life does consist in the abundance of your possessions. It really does, according to the messages that we hear all the time. And so Jesus gives us a parable to illustrate this for us in a dramatic kind of way. Verse 16, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. The parable introduces us to a rich man. This man is already rich, but he's given more. It's, the NIV says he's uh, produced a good crop, but really it's a, a, a plentiful crop, an abundant, uh, unusually abundant crop. It's a, uh, a, a windfall, something sort of dramatic. The land of this man was remarkably productive. Now, we don't have any indication here that this was ill-gotten land or wealth. There's no dishonesty that's implied or expected necessarily. It's just a case of a rich man being blessed with more. You should notice he hasn't done anything necessarily to earn this or to deserve it. It's just that the land produced it for him. What produced his wealth in abundance? The ground, the land. And from the biblical perspective, what is the land? The land is the great gift of God all throughout the Old Testament narrative. God speaks of the land as a gift to his people, not something that they've earned. God makes all kinds of laws in the Old Testament for the stewardship of the land, for making the land productive, for providing a continuing inheritance to tribes and families and clans, for using the land to provide for our own needs and to provide for the needs of the poor. The land is the great gift that provides life for the people of God. That's just the theme of the whole Old Testament. As God leads his people out of the Exodus, as God made promises to Abraham, I'm going to give this land to your people. Cities you didn't build, crops you didn't plant will be yours. I'm going to give it to you, and this land is a gift for all your generations. So, the man is benefiting from the gift of the land. And secondly, and just as importantly, the land is productive because God provides the rain. And God provides the sun. And God provides the seed and the plants and the life of each one. So that uh, it, it, it's, it's blessed. It's productive. It works. So God has provided in two ways. He's given the land and he's given everything else that the land needs in order to produce a crop. The man can produce none of these crops. All of it is a gift that God has given. Land is the great gift. Land, of course, is the great dispute. If you ask any Middle Easterner today, what is the problem with the world? It's the problem of land, right? Who owns the land? Who deserves the land? Who should keep 
Who should, uh, who should own it? How should they keep it? How should they try to get it back? I remember some 15, more than 15 years ago, I w when I was in Israel, I was talking to some college students about, you know, all of these disputes, and they said, you know, they were Israelis talking about the other side. They said, do they want peace or do they want land? If they just want land, we can give them land, but they, they want more land. They don't, they don't want peace, they want land. And of course, if you would talk to Palestinians, they would say the same thing. They don't want peace, they want land. They're building on these, you know, settlements on these areas that are our land. And that were our historic land. You know, it, it's the problem of land. That's the whole problem. Wars are fought over land. The problems in Eastern Europe, when I lived in Eastern Europe, you know, it was, it, what was it all about? It was about the land. It was about ethnicity. It was about each nation thinking that justice was having their borders drawn at the height of their empire. Well, what does that mean, of course? No matter when that happened in history, justice is great Hungary, great Bulgaria, great Bosnia, whatever, right? All of those empires crossed over each other at different times. And everyone thought that there, it was their right, it was justice for them to have what was theirs. And so they fight wars over it. Land is the great resource. Land is the source of great dispute. And that's probably the dispute of the man and his brother who's asking the question. It's a question of dividing up of the land. So this man's crops, a rich man produces a rich crop, and he has a problem. The blessing of God establishes a problem for him. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This man's problem is too much, too much abundance, too much stuff. And the detail that would have impressed Jesus' audience in hearing this verse is that the man thought to himself. It's a more complex idea than that. The man uh, discussed with himself, the man debated with himself, the man deliberated with himself and considered with himself. It's not just like he thought for, for a day or two. The idea of this word is that he um, thought about it for a long time that he debated it, that he discussed it, that he considered it, all with himself. Something like this uh, in village life of the day would, not, would normally have been not just a matter of this man's own deliberations. In ordinary village life in Jesus' day, this would have been a topic for the elders. This would have been a topic at the city gate. This would have been a topic for the man's family, his friends, his relatives, his neighbors. What should you do with your abundance? How can we uh, help you decide? How can we lend our wisdom? You know, there would have been collaboration normally. And so Jesus' audience would have picked up on this very quickly, that this community normally would have been involved. They would have been a part of it because village life is very communal. But this man is alone in his deliberations. And we'll see more and more on that as we go. We should also notice the pronouns. Everything that the man says is his. Everything that he uses is described by the word my, my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. Out of the man's mouth comes a confident expression that he really thought it all was his. And thus he needs to manage it and he needs to take care of it. The short-term solution is that he proposes to build more in order to keep it all. In verse 18, then he said, this is what I'll do. 
I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. If the problem is a lack of storage for my crops, then the solution is to have more storage for all of my crops. This is logical. This is sort of case closed. I love the quote. I think I put it there in the bulletin from St. Augustine from the 4th century, where Augustine, commenting on this passage, said, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. I thought that was a good quote, way to put it. There's no hint that this rich man considered any other people at all. In the whole parable, there's no other people that are mentioned until God speaks. This autonomous individuality would have spoken volumes to Jesus' audience about this man's value system, about his relationships. The short-term solution leads to a long-term solution, verse 19. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Again, talking to his self, to his, literally to his soul, I will say to my soul, um, if I can do this, then I can say to my soul, enjoy my goods for many years. As long as I can, I can enjoy it all. I have many years left to live the good life, seemingly in isolation. There's no rejoice with me aspect in this man's life. Opposite the parables of Luke 15, if you remember the parables of Luke 15, when the, when the lost sheep is found, the shepherd says, rejoice with me to his community. When the lost coin is found, the woman says, rejoice with me to her community. When the prodigal son returns, the father says, rejoice with us. And even the older brother, you cannot steal our joy because it's right for us to celebrate, because what was lost is found. There's, that is community life in the biblical world. Rejoice with me, even over the little things like finding a lost coin. This man has no one to rejoice with. It's part of the brilliance of the parable, I think. Jesus is showing us that wealth so often moves people to separate distance themselves from others. It creates barriers between people. Isaiah 5.8 says this, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. Right? They're adding, they're making their fields and their houses bigger and bigger. Until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And we can think of a lot of examples, I'm sure, of sad and lonely people who have a lot but who have a trail of broken relationships and no one to share it with. Finally, God speaks into the scene in verse 20. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You have been given, and now it will be taken. The idea of one's life being demanded from you is like the, the, the root of the idea is like a, the return of a loan. It's a payback of what is not yours. God is saying to this man, your soul, your earthly life was on loan to you. It wasn't yours to begin with. It wasn't yours to own. It was on loan to you, and now I'm collecting the loan. So there's a great reversal, right? This man who has great gain has now, has now become even greater loss. 
Because the loss of the soul is the loss of everything. It's not just the loss of his property and his possessions as though some sort of natural disaster or something happened, right? The loss of the soul is game over. It's the loss of everything. Psalm 49, if you uh, look at that sometime this week, it, it gives a very interesting commentary on wealth, including this idea that no one can redeem themselves by their own possessions. That the stuff, that there's no way to buy a soul. That it's apples and oranges. There's also great irony. There's reversal. His, his gain is his loss. And now there's irony. The man who deliberated alone, the man who celebrated alone, the man who called everything mine in the end will not benefit from his bumper crop and his bigger barns. He will not gain a thing. In the end, nothing is his. Who will gain? Who knows? Someone else, anyone else. Not him. Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? God leaves him with a question. Have you thought about who will get what you prepared for yourself? Who knows? It doesn't matter in terms of the parable. The man is lost. All that he had gained. So Jesus concludes with another wisdom saying, this is the, you know, the matching conclusion, verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. This is how it will be. It's a wisdom saying, it's not a promise. But the logic is inescapable. The contrast is treasuring for oneself versus gathering for God. Investing in the kingdom of heaven versus investing for oneself. And our parable ends with this bit of wisdom to, to, you know, to wrap it up and to drive home the point. The man who asked Jesus to make his brother share with him gets a different answer than he expected. And his answer comes in the form of this parable, watch out, beware, this is how it will be. There's an open ending here for this man, right? This nameless man who made this request. The ending is open as it is with so many of the parables. What will you do? What will happen to this relationship with your brother? What will the crowd do as a response? He's saying this to them. He's made an object lesson out of this man and his story. The parable function is, functions as an invitation to consider and to think within the heart about the nature of wealth and resources and greed and ownership and stewardship and all of these kind of things. To think about loneliness. Think about what it is that wealth can divide and separate people one from another. What's Jesus trying to teach us? I kind of try to, you know, it's all of these things. I try to boil it down into a couple points that, that are sort of the theological points. Life is not gained through things. Life is gained in God. No matter how many times I hear this message, as a Christian, I need to hear it again. Everyone else is saying the opposite. Everyone else is marching to the beat of a different drummer. Life does not consist of things or the abundance of things. No matter how nice our things are or how meager... No matter how much I have or how little, 
No matter how much the neighbors have or what our culture values, no matter how hard I have or have not worked for my things, life is not about things. The gain of things does not lead to life. The source of true life is only one. There's only one source of true life. Jesus taught a lot about money, I think, because he knows what it does to our hearts and how easy it is to place our lives in our things and how much faith is required to say, even though life around me seems driven by possessions and things and having, there's another kind of life that's not driven by those things. And that requires us faith to see that there's a spiritual realm. There's not just this physical realm, even though we know, you know, in our, in our hearts, in our heads, we know we won't live forever. We know, yet, because it's in front of us all the time, because it's, it's what we know, it's what we see, we just, it's just natural. We place our lives into our things. Life isn't gained through things, life is gained in God, according to Jesus. Secondly, life is not owned by a person. It's not owned by ourselves. It's a gift from God. That's the, the, you know, this idea that I can't control my life. I can't control my days. I can't add anything to them. I can't make them longer. This very night, my life might be taken from me the same for you. God gives the land, God gives the rain, the crops, the increase, God gives the soul. Our earthly time is loaned to us. This rich man thought that he owned both his things and his soul. And the parable shows us how terribly foolish and mistaken he was on both counts. Reminded of that story, some of you may have seen it in the newspaper of the, the mansion in Annapolis that burned down a few weeks ago tragedy of uh, a story of, you know, grandparents who had built this enormous house. They had retired. They would have, I'm not judging them at all. I don't know them, of course. But you would think that they would think, we're retired. We've accumulated great wealth. And we're going to enjoy it. We're going to enjoy it with our grandkids. And how a faulty electrical wire on a Christmas tree can ruin all of that. We can think of other examples, of course, of things that we know, of seemingly random things that can turn someone's life or end it very quickly. This very night, God says to this foolish man, your life will be demanded from you. You thought you had years, but you didn't. The rich man thought he owned his things and his soul, but he was wrong. And of course, Jesus is telling us, what are we going to invest in? What do we value? What do we see inside the house of the parable? How has our perspective changed by encountering these words this morning? I think the parable challenges us to think about what it means to own something. We use the language all the time. All the time, I own this, I have that, I own this, it's mine. What is truly ours? What is truly ours that hasn't been given to us? Now, of course, 
there's a biblical principle of using hard work and using uh, wisdom and, you know, doing all that God, using the gifts God has given us to, to do good things and to produce good outcomes and to improve our lives, certainly. But what is ours, truly? Where did it come from? And how easy it is to think that things that we've been given are mine. Any gift that you're given is yours, right? It's on loan from God, according to this parable. Our very souls are on loan from Him. So think about that this week. What does it mean to say that we own things? Think about how often you say that. And what does it look like for us to be grateful? What does it look like for us to be content as we think about what we have and what we've been given? The parable also leads us right along a path, I think, to fight the problem of anxiety and to fight for contentment. If you continue to read here in chapter 12, famously, Jesus tells us right after this parable, don't be anxious, look to the birds, look to the flowers, look to the way that God provides for his creation, and know that you're much more valuable than they are, right? Don't be anxious. Because you see an object lesson around you that God provides for flowers, that God provides for birds, and that you're of more value than they are. So there's a cure here for anxiety, not a cure to, make sure, to mean that we know this and then we're never anxious again. Certainly, it's a struggle. But it's a lesson. There's a heavenly father. There's a father who cares for his people, who knows our needs. And he says to us, seek his kingdom, in verse 31, and these things will be given to you as well. He says to us, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And so that changes how we think about money. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, for no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our parable leads us right into this teaching that Jesus tells us about worrying, about anxiety, about, about knowing what it is to need something and, and, and challenging us to trust that we have a Heavenly Father who provides for us. I love that line, do not be afraid, little flock. Do, don't fear, my little sheep. You know? Your father has been pleased to give you what? Not just food, not just shelter. Your father has been pleased to give you a kingdom. That's the gift for the people of God. Jesus' parables are good for us, aren't they? They challenge us, they teach us. Consider these things. Think about them. Ask God to show you what it means to, to reorient your perspective a little bit this week reorient life from things, from what you think you own, uh, to this idea of, of being a steward of a, of a life that's on loan to you uh, from a Heavenly Father who has given you the kingdom and wants to give you so much more indeed. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning that we have been blessed as your people with the kingdom. We can't even really 
comprehend that because we, we're not royal people. But you have said that we are, are, are given a kingdom and that that means that we won't fear. And so, God, we pray that you would take away our fears and our anxieties. Some of those are, are rooted very deeply within us and are very real. We don't know sometimes where the money will come from, where the things that we need will come from. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust, help us to know uh, that, you're care, that you are caring for us. Lord, help us to number our days rightly. Help us to um, be the people who are investing and generous towards others and towards you, rather than uh, confining our generosity to ourselves. God, continue to speak to us through the words of this parable this week, and we pray in Jesus' name.